they placed their standard on par with the very commandments of God and basically said, you break our standard, then you have committed a direct offense against God. And, and then even then, what was spoken about last week was completely in the face of everything that they understood. We, we looked at the fact that it wasn't about what you adhered to. It was rather the attitude of one's heart. Uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery in your heart, which took it a step further. And it, and it emphasized the fact of not only the greater calling placed with on the people, upon the people of God, that, that great calling, it, it sort of took it deeper in regards to the attitude of one's heart makes a difference. The attitude of one's heart is demonstrated and expressed in what is said and what is done. And as we carry on this week, we're going to look at some other things that Jesus said. And and as we go through this, I'm going to open in a word of prayer. But as we go through this, I I want you to be examining yourselves as we look in the Scriptures. I, I want you to be sensitive to the Spirit of God that as we look at various things that Communicates. We've got a lot of information today, but information is only information or useless information if it does nothing in your life. If, if you don't take and apply that information in your specific context. And with that, with that in mind, I want you to see how you yourself, as the Spirit of God prompts your heart, where you see these attitudes alive in your life whether you see these attitudes harbored within your heart, irrespective of the context, whether it might be at home or at work, whether it might be on the sports field or at the computer. Because in all honesty, I I don't know where you're at. And, And what God speaks to you about will be something completely different to what God shares with someone else. So be sensitive as to how God identifies things within you. And the attitudes that you have that may not necessarily be of God, even though you may dress it up in Christian clothing. So if you want to bow your heads, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is quick and powerful and able to divide the soul and spirit, the bones and marrow to the very depths of our being. As able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I ask that as we look at your word now, you might bring it about by your spirit within our lives. That we might be sensitive to what you have to say and speak to us through these words of your Lord, of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we commit ourselves to you now. Help my voice to speak clearly. Help our hearts to be sensitive to your spirit. Uh, Give us the courage to deal with the convictions you place within our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus said what? If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start at another section of where Jesus said some pretty shocking things. Shocking things that would force you to stop and think. And we're going to start at verse 38. And we're going to read to verse 48. And we're going to look at what Jesus taught us about loving enemies. That's just ridiculous. That is, that is ludicrous. Loving enemies, really? This is what we are called to do? Now, I know I don't have, well, maybe I do have enemies, I don't know. I know there are people that don't like me. Um, but to love an enemy, this is, this is very foreign. So starting at verse 38, read with me. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's intense. Because once again, Jesus, in an effort to realign the focus of the religious leaders of the day, begins these next points with this phrase, once again, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. But this time, it's not in the same sense of what we looked at last week or, or, or the, in verses 21 through to 26 of Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about what murder is. You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. In those two instances, what the Jews did, what the Pharisees did, was like I said, set that buffer. Set that buffer around the laws of God to prevent them from breaking the laws of God. But when you look at these two instances, you're like, well, hang on a sec. What sort of buffer is required for these two things? What do you mean you have heard it said it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Because it doesn't need a buffer zone. These things make perfect sense. But these things are actually, well, Jesus is actually referring to another issue that comes about through religious adherence. Religious adherence to the commandments of God, which is not a bad thing. Please don't misinterpret me, but I'm going to explain why it becomes a bad thing for the Pharisees. The first is that for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The second is referring to how one treats their enemies in verse 43. The first is a direct quote from Exodus 21, verse 24 to be exact. Now, when you look at Exodus, when you look at Deuteronomy, when you look at Numbers, what's really quite interesting, and I want you to think about this, Moses had been given an amazing task of leading the nation out of bondage into the promised land. And he basically was used by God to establish a whole functioning society. He had to establish laws to govern a whole civilization. And so when you read those first few books of the Bible, this is God instituting basically the moral framework of how a society is supposed to exist. And so when you look at Exodus 21, you read things like this. I think I put it up there. I didn't, sorry. In, verse 20, in verses 1 to 10, you are given instructions about how you're supposed to treat your servants. In, verses, uh, tw- in verse 12, you have information regarding about intentional 
or personal injury, or even intentional homicide, intentional murder. In verses 13 and 14, you've got unintentional manslaughter. And you've got stuff about kidnapping. You've got stuff about how people are supposed to treat their parents. You've got stuff about how people deal with quarrels and arguments. That's in verses 18 and 19. So the establishment of all these things that Moses is setting in place, we read this in verses 23 through 25. But if there is serious injury, You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That's basically it. You know what that is called? Justice. That's exactly what that is called. That's called justice. I'm going to look at that a little bit later on. The second is a conclusion that is drawn from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which states this up here. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's really fascinating about this is that when you take that little phrase, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, And we all agree that that is true. What we do as people is we take such things and say, well, if this is true, love your neighbor, then the antithesis or the opposite of that must be true also. Love your neighbor is true. Therefore, hate your enemy is true. These are the two things that Jesus is making reference to. He's making reference to, one, how you treat justice, and the second one he's dealing with is love. See, in both of these cases, they seem fair and reasonable. So then why does Jesus start with this phrase once again, you have heard it said. You have heard it said in relation to such clear-cut teachings in the law. This is because, and a lot of people don't like the sound of this, this is because even something as good as justice and love, even something as good as justice and love, because of our sinful nature, we can twist it, we can manipulate it, we can misuse it to promote our own personal agendas. That's the reason why Jesus has to address this. For example, this whole example of justice, of an eye for an eye, we twist that by our nature. We are never satisfied with retribution that is of equal value. We aren't. Someone hits you, you want to hit them back harder or more. Someone takes from you, you want to take from them more so they know how much it hurts. You notice, I see some people smiling, and they're like, (laughs) because you're like that as well. I'm like that. I remember as a kid, someone hit me, and I'm like, ah. And I just kept going, and I kept punching until they cried. And they cried, and I'm like, oh, I feel bad now. I wasn't feeling bad while I was punching them. I was was waiting for that. But that that is what we do. You betray someone, and then you hope someone will betray them even worse so they know how it feels. This is what we do with justice. In the second instance of love, actually... It reminds me, just quickly, I had a friend named Babani Harry. He was from Papua New Guinea. I met him at Bible college. When we actually discussed this, and I shared this years ago, when we discussed this whole idea of justice, of a life for a life, this is once again how we and our sinful nature twist things. And he shared in the village he came from, they believed in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which meant this. If you run over somebody's pig, the owner of that pig will take your son's life. 
Now, we see the disparity between that. How can you, you know, hold the same level of a pig with that of a human person? But that was not the issue. That was irrelevant. It was a life for a life. That's how we twist it. That's where we use justice to promote our personal agenda. And in the second instance of love, the same principles apply. What I mean by that is we speak and promote the greatness and the power of love because we have received such love. But we always seem to focus on love for the lovable. We focus on love those who love you in in return. We find loving the lovely is easy. But there's no real sacrifice in that, is there? There's no cost to me, because it doesn't cost me anything. But you look how we've twisted this. If you read in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter in love that is read out of 80 to 90% of weddings nowadays, you read that and what love is and what society has done has minimized that beautiful picture of how love is, love is described to a, a, a sweaty-palmed feeling, uh, the, the weak knee knocking, the, the heart palpitating when you see the individual walk in, the, 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 oh, what have you done for me? What can I do for you type thing? We, it's just this emotional, warm, fuzzy that we have nowadays. That's, that's what we have reduced love to. Actually, if you look in society today, you see how love is promoted? Love is promoted as lust. That is how love is promoted. Lust. Lust is all about what can you give me? How do you satisfy my needs? What can I take to make me feel good? That is lust. And yet you look in every TV show, you look at every movie, you look at every magazine that talks about what love is, that's how they describe it. And they've reduced love to this physical act of what you do for me. That is how it has been twisted. So Jesus, in his mercy, realigns the focus. First, we're going to look at justice. First, he contrasts the legalistic standards of the religious leaders and goes directly against our human sinful nature. Remember what he says? You have heard it said, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is what Jesus says. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you. And talks about later about borrowing. You see, this flies in the face of our very being, of our very, wait, let me rephrase that. This flies against our very sinful being. This is what it fly, flies directly in the face of. Look at these words. Don't resist. Don't resist. Turn the other cheek hand over, go with them too, give. You see, justice demands payback for what was done. Justice demands retribution, that if something is broken, then the appropriate punishment is enacted. But here is where the limitation comes when it comes to the law. When it comes to the set of rules that is put in place, you know what happens? The law does not discern intent. The law does not discern Circumstance. The law doesn't do that. 
Why do you think we need juries, judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys? We need those things there because the law is as simple as black and as white, as night as is day. That's as simple as it is. And so because of this, because of this, it forces us to, to examine things because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. One of the, the biggest flaws, and this is where the religious leaders fell into the trap, and this is how we can fall into the trap. One of the biggest flaws and of our human nature is that when we adhere to something, when we keep in line with a set of rules, we place ourselves or claim a position of moral superiority over those who fail to hold up that standard. Standard. We view ourselves as being better than others. Who? I serve. You don't. You're useless. I'm a preacher. You aren't. Oh, that's silly, man. I'm in full-time ministry. You work for a living. Ridiculous. No. But this is, this is once again, how we manipulate these things that are set in place to make ourselves feel good. Now, if you want to know how justice and love are brought into line together, I think one of the greatest pictures of this is found in John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11. I'm sorry, yeah, Joseph, yeah, John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11. And this is about the woman who was caught in adultery. Now, I want you to read this with me because I think this explains things and it actually reconciles this idea of justice and love into one beautiful picture. Because this is what we read. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. This is what happens when you consider yourselves better than others. You humiliate those that you don't deem as worthy. You make them feel like rubbish. They get this woman who they, who they found in adultery, well, they haven't even found, and they, she, they, they stand her up for all to see. Look at this harlot. Look at this woman. Already she's probably feeling like rubbish. And so let's, let's take a few more digs. Let's get it in there. This is what happens. And so we carry on reading and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act. Wait, 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 wait. What were they doing? Were they stalking her, waiting for her to get involved in this? The fact that they know she was doing this, does that mean they already had prior information of knowing this was going about and yet did nothing about it? They were using this to manipulate the situation for their benefit. They had no concern for the woman. They had no concern for the person the woman was with. They had no concern about anything else, about, hey, I want to use this against Jesus. It was for their own personal agenda. And we see this in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? What do you say? I reckon they were thinking, trump card. Bam! Was it now? Mic drop. They were like, yeah, what are you going to do now? They thought they had him. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. 
the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the women, woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Was Jesus wrong in doing what he did? I mean, the Pharisees used the law of God in this case. Was Jesus condoning her behavior or excusing her sinfulness? No. And no. Jesus, in his wisdom, tore down the moral superiority of her accusers, and he caused them to examine themselves in relation to God. Not in relation to themselves, not in relationship to each other, and especially not in relationship to the woman. He basically said, look at yourself. Look at yourself. If you have the position to make such a claim, go for it. And upon honest examination, they realized, no. This is, this is the beautiful picture of where justice and love is unified. You see, Jesus, in his wisdom, took the condemnation of the law and replaced it with the mercy and compassion of his love. That was it. There was no compromising because the people making accusation were just as guilty as she was. It may not have been the same sin, but it was the same guilt. And that's the reason why he said what he said. And, and what's terrible is this. After such a condemnation presented to them, what do the Pharisees do? Do they go back and think on what has been said? Do they go back and think about what? No, it's why the Pharisees looked at Jesus and condemned him for treating this woman with love and mercy. It is why they scorned him for mingling with tax collectors and sinners. It is why they fabricated his guilt, though his offense was loving and accepting the unlovable and the unacceptable. This position the Pharisees take is that of using a set of rules, even God's good law, and it became the be-all and end-all of their spirituality instead of utilizing the law of God to draw people, or rather, to drive people to the person of Christ. You see, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 in the King James says this, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, I think in the NIV it's either, it's tutor, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. This is, this is the purpose of the law. The, the, the justice that the law brings, yes, the law brings condemnation, but the law brings us to the feet of Christ because this is where the woman ended up. After all that condemnation, after all that, that, that ridicule, after all that, after that great humbling for her, where was she left at the end? Standing before the feet of the Savior and receiving mercy. Standing before the feet of the Savior and receiving grace. This is, this is what Jesus was wanting to do. And this is how love and justice are reconciled. It is reconciled at the feet of the cross. It is reconciled in the person of Jesus because Jesus calls us to do the same. But sadly, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience here, sadly, we forget. We forget that the Christian gospel is predicated on the truth that you and I are not good enough. 
that you and I are sinners, that you and I fall short. We forget this. Timothy Keller makes this observation where he says, every religion in the world talks about how you earn your righteousness about how you work your way out and receive this point where you're accepted and you're accepted by the divine. You've you got to be good enough. The whole idea about Christianity is that no one is good enough. There is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned. That is you and that is me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, it's not of me coming up and saying, Lord, here I am because I'm something amazing. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's why Keller makes the observation, Christianity is the only religion, true Christianity is the only religion where you consider everybody else better than you. You have to. There'll always be people that are more devoted, always be people that are more righteous, always they'll be better behaved. They'll always, why? Because I'm a sinner in need of mercy. That's why. And that, when you come to the feet of the cross, this is how you understand that. And this is why the second, I'll get to more practical things as we carry on, because our morality, our position, our acceptance is based upon the righteousness, the holiness, the sacrifice of the person of Jesus Christ. That's where it lies and that's where it stays. Even though as a Christian we've been made new, we've been born again of the Spirit of God, we are still in need of help. We're still in need of mercy. I still have no right. I mean, in all honesty, the only opinion of mine that has any value is the opinion that is found within these pages. That's it. My opinion means nothing. My opinion's irrelevant. That's the reason why I walk to this and allow this to govern where I go and what I say. That's what I do. And secondly, you look at the second thing. Firstly, there's the comparison of legalistic rituals and legalistic mindsets. The second is, is trying to accomplish that, which I deem humanly impossible. You know what that is? Loving your enemies. To love your enemies, that's insane. There is an idea that this idea of loving or forgiving your enemies is viewed as weak, as impractical, and as unrealistic in today's cutthroat and brutal world. Throughout this text, we read about the depth by which love, this love, is expressed. So, for example, we read about giving more than what was asked in verse 40, about going the extra mile in verse 41, about giving when asked to be borrowed from in verse 42, and the biggest challenge to not only love your enemies, but to actively pray for them as well, is in verse 43 and 44. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute them, persecute you. Now, loving people is hard. Loving people is hard. Loving your enemies is even worse. But the fact that you've got to pray for them as well, you've got to pray for these people that don't like you and you don't like, that's asking too much. That is asking too much. Because when you're praying for somebody, you're praying that God will work a work of grace within their hearts to change their attitudes and maybe come to know them as Savior. That's what you're praying for. And you don't like them? Ooh. But if I am loved by God who loves him just as much, if I am created in God's image just as they are created in God's image, then what right do I have to sit there and say, no, I'm not going to. Let hell come to them. One of the elders from my church, Steve Courtney, I remember him, and he was a guy he didn't like at work. He really didn't like him at all. 
And he, he, got, he the guy just kept irritating the way he talked. He was just really, and he's like, no, it's Steve, Steve, big boy, big boy. And he, he sits there and he's just, he's just had enough. And he takes out a gospel tract. And it was basically said, are you ready to die? And he goes, here. And he shoves it in his face. Just shoves it in his face. Says, just to shut the guy up. And he takes it. And he walks away. And he reads it. And he goes, oh, he's finally out of my hair. Then the guy comes back. And he starts asking him questions. What does this mean? Does this mean I'm going to hell? Does this mean I'm not right before God? And now Steve's like, he's still, he's still angry at the guy. And he goes, now I've got to share the gospel with him. And he shares the gospel. The guy becomes saved. Steve's still irritated. Now he's like, now I've got to love him. You're supposed to love him before. But isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? See, this is, once again, this is our own selfishness, our own desire for what we want. Like I said, loving them is hard. Praying for them too is a big deal because it means an active, willful involvement by me towards people I don't like towards people that are my enemies, to pray for them. Now, here's what's crazy. You see, in verses 46 and 47, we are given this standard, this standard. If you love those who love you, the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, do not even the pagans do that. See, this is a standard, standard of basic human decency. That is the standard of basic human decency. Treating people who you love and who love you, that's not something to celebrate. Treating people and greeting people that, that greet you and welcome you, that's not a big deal. You don't get no congratulations for that. I'm not going to celebrate that for you. Because if you're doing this, congratulations, welcome to the human race. Everybody does that. I'm sure back in Nazi Germany, Nazis would see Nazis and say, what's up? What's up? You going good? Yes, good. I'm sure, I'm sure that's what they did. I, I, I'm sure, you know, if, if, they're, if they're racist, they'd probably greet racists, get together and do their racist talk. I'm sure they'd have fun doing it. it, it that's, that's not a big deal. This is why Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies flies in the face of everything we stand for as people because it is completely foreign to us. This is what's pioneering about the person of Jesus Christ because this is the standard by which the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, this is what they taught. This is accepted. This is normal. But this is the standard that Jesus has called upon you and I as his followers. One, to give, to, to, to not despise, to, to give to those who ask you, all those things, to love on your enemies. You know why? Because there are three reasons, three reasons why we are to live the way Jesus has called us to live. First one, it's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. The conduct of his submission and his humility exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. We are his enemies. We are the guilty ones that have offended him. And yet, what I read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 is this, that when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. He, he, when he suffered, he made no threats. I read about you know, what Jesus did in Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
that when he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Remember, Jesus, Jesus could shut people down with a question. Remember, Jesus talked about this with his disciples, that he had the whole host of heaven that were there ready to go at his word. This is the word that spoke everything into existence. This is the word that calmed a storm. This is the word that that had power to transform lives. And he said, I'm going to keep quiet. I will not retaliate. And to think, even in Matthew chapter 27, verse 42, amidst the scoffing of his very identity, I mean, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Come on now. You said you're the big one. Come on now. Let's see what you got. And he didn't. He didn't. He didn't replay, repay an eye for an eye. He didn't repay a tooth for the tooth. He, in the face of such anger and hate, turned the other cheek. And you know what he did? He prayed for them. He prayed for them. And you know why he turned the other cheek? Once again, it's because he saw the bigger picture. He saw the bigger picture. Now, when you read through those two passages from verses 38 to 48, The teaching of these truths are evident in the very life, ministry, and actions of Jesus Christ. For example, when I read, turn the other cheek, if anyone slaps you, okay, to turn the other cheek also, I've seen Jesus actually do this. Luke 22, 63 to 65. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded prophecy. Who hits you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Our God who could have destroyed, actually he would have known, he would have known who did that. He would have known what they were doing, their attitudes, all that sort of stuff. And he turned the other cheek. That is exemplified in the person of Jesus. When you see When you read how someone wants to take your shirt, you give them your coat as well. I read about when they crucified him, they gambled over his clothes. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. When I read about walking the extra mile, you see Jesus go out of his way in John chapter 4 to go to Sychar to meet with a woman at a well. When 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 I read to the one that asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I see Jesus and the likes of Mark 10, when blind Bartimaeus cries out and says, son of God, please hear me. And they say, keep quiet. And he yells even more. Or the sorry Phoenician woman who comes up and, and she says, can you please do something? He says, I'm not supposed to give it to people that aren't of the house. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. Jesus heard and responded. See, everything that Jesus asks of us, Jesus has done. Now, I always admire people, I always admire people, specifically leaders who are never afraid to do what they ask of other people. Never afraid to do that. If someone's got to dig a trench and say, Joe, can you dig a trench? And they've already dug one, no worries. If I have someone who says, Joe, can you clean out the toilet? And they've already cleaned out the toilet, no worries. Jesus here sits here and says, turn the other cheek. He says, give to those that ask of you. He says, he says, pray for those who despitefully use you. He says, love your enemies. He says all these things. And you know why he can ask those things of me? Because he's done all of them. 
And he's showing me how it's done. He's showing me how it's done. But you see, Jesus is only asking of, that, asking of us that which he has done himself. For when Jesus turned the other cheek, it was done so that God's justice was satisfied. When he turned the other cheek, we see the second reason. Not only is it because of what he did, it's because it is Jesus' love expressed. When I read about loving your enemies, I bear witness of Jesus' treatment of others, even to those who are seeking his death. I see him who is loving and gracious, uncompromising and holy, but always because of his love for the Father and his desire to show the Father to everybody that he encountered. From the dialogue with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the clearing out of the temple in Matthew chapter 21, uh, Matthew 21 the healing of the demoniac in Luke 7 to his discourse with the people right here in Matthew 5 through 7. All of these actions were done in order to reveal the greatness of God's love for his people. And that this God is a God that desires to be personally involved with us. I see that, see the greatest of these acts being the crucifixion of his son for you and I. Because I see the greatness of his love. See, I'm told in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that my mind, my natural state, is at enmity with God. That's what I'm told. So basically, I am an enemy of God. And even though I'm an enemy, and then my mind is in direct contradiction to everything he stands for, he came. And he expressed that love for me, even in my enmity, in the death of his son. I read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that, that while we are yet sinners, see, not while we were righteous, because there is none righteous, not while we are working hard, because nothing we do is, is worth enough, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. It's while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's it. While we were sinners, God reached out. God pursued you. God clothed himself in human form in order to bring you to himself. As sinners, because there is nothing, as Paul says, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is what Jesus did. And our wretchedness and, and our sinfulness, and that God set in place a means which I can be reconciled to Him as sinners. Read Romans chapter 5, verse 10, because it's a great verse. Because you read about if for us as sinners we're reconciled to God through His Son, how much more then, how much more as being His children do we receive from Him? If we receive the best He had to offer as sinful people, now that we are his children, we receive even more in our relationship with him. What a privilege and what a blessing manifest. Because I see the love of Jesus revealed for the very people crucifying him and praying for his enemies, Luke 23, 34. I see his grief at a people who were without a sheep, without a shepherd in Mark 6, 34. I see a God who gave the best he had to offer in his son in order to bring us to himself, John 3, 16. 
And I see a father who gives his children the means by which we can live in this current world in John 16, 13. This is, this is what we received. This is what Jesus has given us. Because it is, it is, it is how his love is expressed. And thirdly, the third reason, the third reason, it is how we live as God's people. You see, for us to naturally love our enemies, for us to naturally turn the other cheek, that is beyond, that is beyond us humanly. I shared this years ago, Garth Campbell, Garth Campbell, we used to call him the bullet. Garth Campbell, he was just, he played rugby league for a number of years and the dude was a gun. He was about yay high and he was just solid muscle. He was just, he was fast, he was strong. And like, I, I, I never actually wanted to play rugby league against him because I would get hurt. But I remember when we played touch footy, we had a church touch footy team. And I remember when a guy punched him in the face, punched him in the face. Like it was, a, it, was, it was a mean one. It was a mean one too. And I remember, I remember Garth running away as fast as he could. He ran away as fast as he could. Was he a coward? No. Was he scared? No, he could have stabbed the dude in two. No, he ran away because he didn't want to fall into sin by allowing his flesh to take over. He ran away because he wanted to hold his testimony for his Lord Jesus Christ. And if that meant he turned the other cheek, then so be it. If that meant he ran off the field because the guy chased him and he ran away. And because Garth is so fast, he couldn't catch him. The guy abused him. The guy was yelling swear words at him. The guy was harassing him. He didn't care. He came back. We played the rest of the game. He came back and not one of us, while the other team looked at him and was mocking him, we praised God for him. And I always, remember, I always remember that distinctly because of my respect for him grew. What a godly man that did not care what man thought and was only concerned about what his Savior and how his Savior viewed him. This is how we are to live. But you know what gets in the way? Yourself. Your own pride, your own reputation, your own arrogance, your own demand for your rights. If we look at the person of Jesus Christ, not one of those things came into play for him. The thing he was concerned with was us. And so we are to live this way as God's people. Why? Matthew 5, 45 and 48. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now here's the thing. The exhortation of verse 48 where it says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect is only met when the living out of verse 45 is present. Living as a child of God. We have been given the spirit of God who dwells within us and who has given us a new nature. We are told this. We are told we are new creations. We are told that we walk in the newness of life and we have been equipped to be able to live that way. We are to reflect. We are to reflect everything that Jesus Christ is, even in these shocking words that contradict everything the world says about what a real man is or what a real woman is, where it says that you either submit and that you humble yourselves and you entrust God in this situation with that flies in the face of it. You see, it is only through faith and through dependence and trust on the person of Jesus Christ that we can live this way. It's the only way. 
It's the only way it can be achieved. And, and the only way that that strengthens is the more, as John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, that he must increase and I must decrease. It is only the increasing of Jesus Christ in our lives that we don't care about what the world thinks of us or how the world's standard, how we measure up against the world's standards. We are to live in accordance with this here, the pages that by his spirit he has granted us to live by. So when I look about justice and love, when I look about turning the other cheek and about loving my enemies, these are the reasons why we are called to do so. It is what Jesus did. It is how Jesus' love is expressed. And it's how we are to live as God's, as God's people. So my encouragement to you today, my encouragement to you and thinking in practical terms is the choices we make moment by moment, day by day. To handle things the way we used to handle it as non-Christians, to retaliate because somebody has offended us, only escalates the situation in a negative way. Um, case in point, before I close. We went to a vivid one, one weekend many years ago, and my wife being the, the compassionate, loving woman she is, as we're walking along, they shut all the streets down, there was a girl that was crying and a gentleman, which we assumed was her boyfriend, that was yelling at her and yelling abuse at her and things like this. So my wife, there were a couple of policemen just up the hill and this guy's yelling and she's crying. The guy calmed down. My wife walked over to see if she's okay. She walks over and goes, oh, you're all right. He starts yelling at my wife. I'm like, you can't do that. So I walk over, and so uh, you, can, you can see how it's beginning to escalate, eh? Starting to escalate. And what's really funny is that when I walked over, and I just said to him when he, when he swore at my wife, I just said, do not talk to my wife like that. And then I was about to carry on talking to him when the policeman came over, and the two coppers came over, and they settled everything down. And then my wife said to the police, I just want to see if she's all right. She said, I'm okay. All right, then. Then we went our way. But the escalation, see, the policemen weren't doing anything was the guy talking to the girl, or when my wife was talking to the girl, it only, it, it only jumped in when I got there. Because that, now, not, there was nothing racist in that. Nothing, it wasn't, no. Wow, that's terrible, you guys. Okay. No, the, the reason why they stepped in is because they saw an escalation happening. Because now you got, no, it, it's, it's highly improbable that the guy would hit the girl. Well, you better not hit my wife. But it was highly improbable that he would hit, but he'd probably have no problem hitting another guy. And so that's going to start a fight, then go paperwork, then they have to arrest people. I don't think they wanted that. That's why they came in. But see, that's what happens when we handle things a human way. Handling it the way God says, practically, a choice by choice. Maris Thomas. Maris Thomas, this is just a comparison. Maris Thomas was at work. There was a guy who did not like him, punched him in the face. Punched him in the face during work hours. Maris, he was only, a, he was only not a very big guy, said to him, as a Christian, the Bible has taught me to turn the other cheek. You've punched me in the face. And he turned the other cheek and says, here you go. Here's the other one. And the guy stopped and went, what do you mean? Oh, I just, I just want to be obedient to what the Bible teaches. And I have to turn the other cheek. If you want to hit that one, that's fine. And the guy freaked out. He walked away. And then they were able to have a dialogue afterwards. 
in which Mars got to share with him. He didn't become a Christian, but it, it helped settle things. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away anger. A soft answer turns away anger. This is the reality of seeing Jesus Christ at work through what he says, because we are, called, we are governed by what the scriptures teach. Don't allow the standards of the world of what you are and are not to do be that which governs you. The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and your love for God, that is to be our ruling factor. That is how we change society one soul at a time. That's what we are called to do. I'm not going to ask the music team up. What I would like is for you to be upstanding, and I'll invite the prayer team up. And I'm going to close in prayer, but... I don't know how much of this may have resonated with you. I don't know how much of this may have affected you or, or not. I know there are things that I had learnt and I saw a, a lot of times where I had adhered to standards and passed judgments or considered myself morally superior to others as well that I needed to repent from. But if you want to be prayed for this morning, we would love to pray for you. So if you'd like to be upstanding, and I'll close in the word of prayer. And if, if you don't want to come up and pray, for, pray, pray with us, that's fine. But I would encourage you, at some stage today, pray for somebody. Come along somebody and pray for them. If there's someone in this church that you do not like for whatever reason, go up to them, pray for them, and tell them how much you love them. Even if it's not much. Tell them how much you love them because that is your brother, that is your sister. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand here in your presence and thank you for the, the challenge that you have placed within our lives this morning, a challenge that you yourself have manifest in your Son, Jesus Christ. And while we always try to endorse and follow through on our own personal justice, may your justice take precedent. May your love and your grace and your mercy fill us to, the, fill us to overflowing so that it might affect all those that we encounter. So I pray, Father, for this church, that we as a church will be willing to submit to your authority, to your ways, and to the person of Jesus Christ, that we would be willing to turn the other cheek, that we would be willing to give when people ask of us, that we would be willing to love our enemies, that we would be willing to pray for those who persecute us. Father, that we will be people who will be perfect even as you, our Father in heaven, is perfect. So, Father, we ask for you now to dismiss us and that we, as your children, will humbly come before you and seek your help as we look to you at the feet of Jesus Christ for direction. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters.